there is no easy money out there anymore. It's going to be very heavy marketing, very heavy effort, and you're going to spend tons of time and sweat and tears. You must love your company, love your product, love your audience, and willing to contribute your next few years of life. Hi, and welcome to the Code and Conquer podcast. Today, we're talking to a real marketing expert. I have invited Jane Portman to talk to us about email marketing, building an email marketing platform for SaaS businesses, and how to stick with your business through tough times to get to profitable times. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's jump right in. And welcome to the 10th episode of the Code and Conquer podcast. And today I have with me Jane Portman. She's the co-founder of UserList. Jane, introduce yourself. What are you doing and how did you end up here? Hi, Tobias. Glad to be here. I'm one of the two UserList co-founders. UserList is an email marketing platform that serves other SaaS companies. We've been working on this since the fall of 2017. I can't imagine how fast the time flies. Yeah, and I'm here to share whatever stories we have that could help fellow indie hackers. And before we started the podcast, you already told me that that wasn't your first idea that you got user list. But before we break into that, how did you actually break into the world of SaaS in general and indie hacking? What's your background? Are you a technical or non-technical founder? I'm definitely non-technical, even <laughs> though my co-founder Benedict says that I'm more technical than I think of myself. <laughs> That's how he puts it. I'm a designer by trade. That's uh, my craft originally. And I started out working locally. Then I grew up to be an art director of an agency by the age of 25. And that's when I had my first kid. And that's when I realized during the maternity leave that I want to work, but I'm really tired of managing others. So I ventured to work online as a, as a design consultant. And I went through a career of being like a simple Upwork, it was Odesk back then, freelancer doing iOS interfaces, and then learning that I should call myself a consultant, leveraging up my consultant career, uh, writing books. So that's how I actually practice marketing and products by doing my own info products and selling them. I like having my own email list, podcasting, a bunch of other things. So that was another few years. And as a designer, I always worked with other SaaS founders on their SaaS products in a really wanted one myself. So in 2016 uh, was the time for the first one, which really didn't go anywhere. It was a simple productivity app. But the good thing was that my engineer was Benedict. Uh, and then I learned that he's amazing. And one year later, when that didn't work out, I invited him for the next venture, and I'm super lucky that he said yes. <laughs> for the full for the full picture, there was also one more co-founder for marketing. So we were supposed to be like the holy trinity of everything we can do: marketing, design, and engineering. And this was Claire Salentrop. She now works at Forget the Funnel with GL Audi, an amazing marketer. But she had to make her professional choices, so she left roughly about one year after we joined. So it's been just just the two of us for for the time being. And what is like you you mentioned your first class? What is Userlist, which is your second uh, product, and how did you get the idea for it? When I was working on that first one, tiny reminder, 
as a non-technical founder, I didn't have access to the database or any kind of internal dashboard. So I had no idea who the users are. And also this question of sending them anything behavior-based on what they based on what they do was quite a problem. The only tool I could find back then was Intercom. It was nice, but kind of not even pretty, like it was before the redesigns. It was kind of not pretty, very expensive, and didn't definitely didn't serve any kind of small business. Like it was already aiming up high in terms of their target audience. So I was like, we need to build something like that, behavior-based automations, messaging. And we did not set out to build an email marketing platform, I can tell you for sure. But over the years, it turned out that just being in that category is easier because it's a very established category in the minds of people. So instead of having to explain like customer messaging, things like that, we just go email service provider, email marketing platform, email platform, email automation platform. There are many names for this. And that's an existing category. So like MailChimp, but for SaaS and much better, like something like that. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned that you actually wanted to some build something else. What was your original vision for that product? Or what, what, what would you have what would what would you have named the product if you were completely free of marketing issues there? It was not exactly the marketing. It's it's a it's a mix of things actually. It's about positioning, about the target audience, and it's one of the biggest questions that the founder has to answer to themselves how to position what they're building. We wanted to get that behavior data in and then do multiple things based on that we wanted to do you know potentially email messages in-app notifications and we've got that we've got email we've got in-app at the moment and potentially do like maybe onboarding checklists or something like that that part we never got to but the idea is once we have the behavior data we can do more things based on that that kind of stuck Uh, but for the first maybe three or four years, we were very stubborn about not allowing marketing email to happen within the platform. So we only tackled the user journey after they created an account and became a trial or like paying customer. And that means onboarding emails and, and for that whole customer email or customer messaging. And then we did a massive amount of research and learned that users do want all their email in one tool. That usually means like smooth switching from someone being a marketing lead towards being a SaaS customer. So we added that, I don't know, maybe three years ago. That didn't like revolutionize anything, but that allowed us to be like a much better value proposition for SaaS businesses we serve. How do you... How do you decide on what, like how much, how much user, like what, what, sorry, resetting. How do you reach out to your users to find out what features they actually want? Like what, what kind of outreach, what of kind, what kind of relationship do you have with your customers? That part we actually learned from non-customers. So mm -hmm. we have embraced different types of customer interviews. So getting on calls with people is hands down the best way to learn. So Not surveys, not written responses, not feature requests will give you enough context into their lives as customer interviews would. So embrace those. We've got a few different types in our like in our library that we use. So for that specific case, we used non-customer interviews. 
we found about 25 companies that fit our customer profile, but were not using UserList. So they were SaaS companies generating decent revenue, doing something with their email marketing, but not switching to UserList for it. So we found out ways to book calls with them, some of them through like leveraging personal connections, some of them through the community. And then we did some questioning with them, starting from like, what's going on in your business? And where does email even stand in this picture? And then closely zooming in into the problem of like what tool they use for email. Because if you just start with the email question, you'll never know their real attitude. And by default, we should really assume that our industry, like what we do, is not necessarily their top of mind. And that is always Mm -hmm. true. Like they have a bigger picture, bigger problems to solve, bigger fish to fry as founders. And yeah. And when I started hearing like, I want all my email in one place, not once, not twice, but like, I don't know, five times, um, using the same words, that was pretty re- revelatory, <laughs> I would say. So in that po- at that point, you decided we're just going to be an email marketing product because everyone says that's actually what they want. And that's the name that they're using, right? We had a few customers saying that before as well, and a couple of advisors too. And we were like, no, no, we, we, we do have our vision. We're not going to do that. No, we, we did give in and uh, happy about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the question why, like, why we were so resistant is because the nature of marketing email and customer email is is vastly different. With customers, we do have their user identifier, we do have their data, rich information about them, legal grounds for sending them emails because they are in a relationship with you. And marketing leads, they don't have an identifier. There is the identity resolution problem, like how do you recognize who's who and, and what they're doing? And how do you recognize someone when they were a lead and then became a customer? And many other things that that our CTO had to to, um, rule out and like fix and think about like a big, big can of worms, really. It's interesting because it's like that for a lot of SaaS companies, but you always have this vision, what you're trying to be. And then 10 customers come and tell you that you actually want to be something else. (laughs) Every SaaS has this problem in my mind, apparently. It comes in different shapes, this kind of problem. Also, feedback comes in different shapes and customers come in different shapes. So uh, it's a combination of who you should listen and how you can ask them about it. You know, one of my favorite books is The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. Mm -hmm. Really helps you try, at least try to remove the bias from your conversations because natural conversation with customers would be super biased. And regarding conversations with customers, you have on your landing page a book, a demo button, something that might not always be regarded as positive thing. But what I really like is that there is a, a free trial button right next to it. But still, I wanted to ask you the question, what's your reason for the book, a demo button itself? And how do people respond to it? Like how, what kind of users decide to give you a call before they use your product? Integrating an email marketing platform is a hard technical task. So we are sort of offering pick your own adventure to people who know what they're doing. They can definitely start a trial right away. If they don't know what they're doing, their trial is just going to bring them the blank screen without any people in it. No users if you don't have the integration. So 
there is a big deal of people who prefer to jump on demo call. And the large part of the demo call is unpacking their current business setup, current tools, current data situation into how exactly userless can fit into that picture and how exactly userless can help. And actually sharing screen and walking through is only a fraction of that demo. And I love doing those because it's it's really mutual. Oh, it's a ton of learning. We learn about their businesses, their problems, and it's always customers also come with different levels of awareness about email marketing automation. So whenever somebody is not specifically a guru, explaining things to them is another like fire drill for me on how to explain very complex things to someone who's not, you know, naturally an email marketing consultant. It's interesting because I like my feeling is that a lot of people hate this button. For example, Cloudflare does something very, very dark pattern style where they have a readily available free trial, but they don't have a button for it. They just have one button, which is called book a demo on their page. Mm -hmm. And I don't like it in that case, right? Because you're kind of making... You're making me think that that's the only way to get something. And as an introvert, I don't really want to talk to someone. I just want to try out the product. But I really like your solution. In, and I also liked your description of it, having both buttons and both kind of users can go their way, right? I think that's, that's also, a good solution for that. It's Demo is not, it's not about introvert versus extrovert, albeit it, there is definitely a factor of that. It's about people willing to enter the self-serve journey immediately versus being, you know, people who prefer being carried over through the sales process for slightly larger companies. And for larger companies, this is definitely the way to go. So they would mm -hmm. not just sign up for something and not know how that fits into the picture and how that works. So human conversations are definitely great. We had an experiment this spring. I hit like desperation mode in terms of like there is no way somebody can be successful without talking to a human first and i really promoted the demo button and kind of really hit the start the free trial button mm -hmm. so one month later my co-founder is like jane do you see that the free trials are the, the trials are really down we're like yeah and then we realized that that what the the website uh design adjustment where kind of switched over the buttons and we switched those back so yes there is definitely a place for uh, both people who like demos mm -hmm. and people who like the self-serve route you just mentioned your co-founder again i am imagining that you guys having started in 2017 it's not still you two guys right this is a bigger part of the team right now yeah right now we're a team of six but yeah the co-founder relationship is definitely still at the heart of this Having to imagine being with the same person as a founder team for now six years and running, how has that been for you guys? Have you always been like on the same page, or was it really, really hard for sometimes to decide what to do next with the with the product? Oh, we usually think about this about similar things. Also, we do have like different departments at hand. So he's like leading technical and product, and I'm doing sales and marketing more. Mm -hmm and design when there is need for this. So we are responsible for different things. It is better to venture out on such complex product together with a co-founder. Like, But finding the one that fits your uh, style of work and your ethics, that's hard. And I'm lucky to say 
that like I found one, but <laughs> going with a stranger on this journey is, is not recommended. Like the only reason why we were so confident is because we had the um, chance to work together before. And also before that, we had known each other in the community as well. So it was like learning about each other in different stages. It's a lot like going to marriage and uh, also having everything down on paper really helps. Like the story with Claire, the third co-founder, was we were able to part amicably because we had the vesting schedule in place. So she didn't immediately own her one third of the company as soon as she started, but that had to be earned over like four years. And being with us for just one year, she was you know fairly compensated for that by owning a bit of equity and that she was able to peacefully quit. Because if we didn't, it would be really very complex and unpleasant situation. And in our co-founder agreement, which we signed before even incorporating an entity or doing anything, was like a big informal document. We had different scenarios laid out. Kids can be born or things can happen. Anything can happen. You know, you're not always going to see eye to eye. And yeah, kids were born next year. <laughs> My third kid within within this journey. So yeah, having everything uh, put down and written really helps. And you know, trusting each other, but also being prepared for different routes is a necessity. So even though you guys, as I understood it, started as a pretty indie hacker setup, you kind of started the the company very, very structured and also already had an incorporation pretty fast, correct? So everything was yeah, written we, down and contracts and stuff. We set out, we signed this like informal co-founder agreement in the fall of 2017 as we started out. But 2018, I think May, is the beginning when we incorporated because we operate in a pretty sensitive industry of customer data compliance and other things we really had to have the groundwork done well from from almost day one um maybe if we did i don't know something simple we could have lasted longer so our rough plan was like well, let's get together build something get to like 5k revenue in half a year that was so delusional really and then <laughs> if that works that's a validation and we're going to incorporate and move forward in the reality we were really really slowly built the foundations that took us a couple years to launch we only launched out of beta in august 2019 so that took two years to get a proper bit out of the door because you can't just roll out something that doesn't work if it's supposed to send end-user communications for your customers. That's not funny. Like, you don't do that. So the reality was much more boring. It wasn't about instant validation. It was about like laying the groundwork for everything slowly, steadily, and patiently. So I can imagine that you already said that the 5K MRR thing didn't work out. So... Not I in the first that. six months. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was more like I think three years uh, or something <laughs> like that that took us to get there. <laughs> so, are you guys profitable in a way that you guys can do userless now full time? And maybe as a as a second question, there, how did you support yourself while you had to get there? Did you do other work to, yeah, towards it, there? It's important for a startup to get money because you can you can survive on 
air just as long. <laughs> so mm-hmm. for the first couple of years, we were consulting on the side. And then in 2020, we joined Tiny Seed. And uh, that came with a bit of money, which allowed us to go full time and start paying ourselves salaries. And then next year, we raised another small round of funding, uh, which helped us to continue that and also add a few more members to the team. So we're still still running on a bit of that money and really, really scratching this moment of profitability right now. So looking forward to that, to celebrating that. I think it's interesting that you came to a point where you knew okay the business is going up we we're not profitable yet or we can't pay ourselves a, a normal salary yet but we're certain enough that that point will come that will take investment from outside at what point did you decide to go with tiny seed and what was your your thought process behind it like I, I imagine that you had some mr at that point but how do you get the confidence to then commit 100 what was your thinking there we were definitely committed because the the amount of groundwork, like I mentioned, we had to lay down in the early years, and it was not one year, it was like two, three years of obvious like work into the future. We had to be serious about this. There was no option for this of not working out, if that makes sense. I don't know, if, if a comet went down on Earth, that probably wouldn't, or <laughs> any other you know, if we were doing tourism and the pandemic hit, that probably would have killed us. But otherwise, in the relatively stable economy, we were just, you know, grinding it out. And we were seeing the results in the revenue, slowly seeing like the growth of our brand. And things are much easier on that part these days as, you know, the traction comes and people know about you more. So yeah, it was more about grinding it out, being very, very serious about it, not treating it as a side gig anymore and like since 2020 it has never been uh, a side gig it has been an, an enterprise that is a uh, kind of larger than yourself especially as we have uh, been adding team members and getting back to tiny seed can you describe tiny seed and how you got there in like two sentences <laughs> sure so tiny seed is an accelerator for early stage SaaS companies that's founded by Rob Walling, the founder of MicroConf and previously Drip, together with Einar Walset. I don't know the break who is exactly the founder. That comes from that MicroConf community where we all have belonged to since 2000, I don't know, 13, 14. I think my first MicroConf was in Vegas in, for, in 2014. So we all know that these guys are great and they have been doing tiny seed for a couple batches by the time we we joined and a lot of people we knew were part of tiny seed so we were kind of collecting peer testimonials and everybody was saying only the good things and we're like yeah we should totally try it and yeah we got through the application process got a couple interviews and landed on board we were a few k into the mrr so we did have, we were generating revenue at the moment, but we were nowhere close to like affording so to pay out salary or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And the biggest, the biggest part, the biggest value, well, getting the money is nice, like, but there are so many other ways you can get the money. The community is spectacular. Like the range of folks you get, they have a super active Slack group. They have like office hours, mentor system, 
So if you want, I'm a big fan of uh, soliciting mentor calls when we're stuck. Every now and then, I don't know, a couple times a year, we do that. And yeah, all of that support is really valuable. And what is the... Like what? What's the restriction to apply for Tiny Seed? Do we have to have some serious MRR, or what do you? What do they Not filter? Not serious through? MRR, but some MRR. It's just been listening to a call recently where they were answering questions for the new batch. You have to be generating revenue because a business that's doing that is, you know, substantially ahead any other business that's not. Hmm. It's just a different like ball game. So once you're doing that. At least, I don't know, a couple K or something like that. Um, maybe even less. But you have to have the infrastructure and the process and the reason and, and the actual customers. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's a requirement. But not you don't have to be very far ahead. And also, I imagine that that's kind of the point where Tiny Seed wants to be, right? If you are f at 50 or 100K MR, you kind of don't need the Tiny Seed investment, right? No, at that stage, you would probably be talking to VCs for your like seed yeah. round or something like that. And then you also mentioned going to an angel round, but you already mentioned that that's not like kind of a VC deal kind mm -hmm. of investment. What was that investment like for you guys? So I can't disclose the specific numbers, mm -hmm. but it was roughly equal to a typical pre-seed round. And I was just talking to a bunch of people, you know, fundraising. We used the safe note. So that's the mechanics we use for this. And we were able to attract 22 plus amazing individuals, individual investors. So nobody of them is owning like a part large enough to dictate us what we do versus with a VC, for example, we would have to like get someone on the board and really be really be listening to what they say. So we have we have 20 plus people on board who are, you know, rooting for us and owning a bit of the company. And that helps us raise enough cash to get a few more people on board the team. So you use the money that you got through those two investments mostly for hiring people for the team? Yes. The tiny seed money is enough for the founders to go full-time and maybe to do some marketing experiments, work with contractors, but to really hire the team, that's probably not enough. So we were already reusing our revenue pretty actively and using tiny seed money, and we still needed more to get people on board. And at that point, you also, like at this point, you have a team, a small team, and userless makes some kind of money in, in at least K revenue, right? How do you then go ahead and scale something like user list? Is this mouse to mouth? Is this buying a lot of Google ads or Facebook ads or anything else? Or what did you try to do? There is no silver bullet for that works for every company. And there is no silver bullet that works for us. But the channel that has worked for us over the last couple of years has been content marketing plus SEO. So super amazing articles that humans enjoy are our hot thing. And we also write them looking at SEO and uh, having that in mind. So it's like a double-edged double, double -edged strategy. And we also do have Katarina, our customer advocate, who hangs out in the communities. And this is called content distribution. But what she really is doing is like engaging in conversations, helping people, and then occasionally dropping links to our content. So it's a very, very fine work versus something that you would like blast on socials and call it distribution. So we have 
this kind of uh, machine going on. And we don't pump enormous an amount of content. So it's usually like a couple articles per month, but they're amazing and they're great for humans to read. So we put them in the newsletter and things like that. And all in all together, that results in a content marketing like engine. But that said, it's not like you can put extra dollars, press a button and it's going to scale. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not exactly how it works. For our specific product, people are only switching email marketing platforms every now and then. Like You have to have resources and very strong motivation. It's like changing houses almost. You know, moving is an enormous task, but people still move. So mm -hmm. same for the platforms. With that in mind, targeting people with ads, it's not exactly our strategy because they might be not be ready to switch. So the conversion to actual trials is usually quite low. Therefore, our game is the inbound combined with the content. And then we'll try to do our best to work with the inbound leads. And I have a question here because you're apparently doing this on a larger scale and I would be, like to hear your opinion on it. Having developed a small solution for this podcast and the blog post for this podcast, that's done by Claude, so the, the AI solution by uh, Anthropic. So I would be very interested in your opinion. Do you think that AI is actually able to do this con kind of content marketing? Or do you, because you say that you ha have very high quality articles, you probably write all of them by hand. Do you think that AI can help there or is that way too much? Okay, I'm, I, I'm not the best person to listen to because I have emotions <laughs> towards AI and they're not positive. Like, I genuinely think the kind of language AI writes is full of fluff. Like, it's full mm -hmm. of filler words. It's absolutely generic. And I'm yet to see a paragraph of substance written really well. Like, I hate verbose emails. I hate verbose articles. And everything that AI does is that. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if you're looking for, like, SEO filler words, it can definitely get the job done. We, like, have just come back from a conference and everybody's raving about how fast they're able to spin up articles and SEO, like, important keywords. But we write exactly the opposite we write things that make sense and every word that we write means that it's coming from email experts that's one part and also the, we need material for the articles it's not like you just write theory and everybody enjoys it so we have found a niche of email examples and it's pretty obvious we have like a big section for them in the blog so we have email examples for every occasion that a SaaS business might encounter And we collect those examples by doing research, but also by sourcing them from the community. I think that was one of your <laughs> questions in line. Yes, we do ask for, for the examples. You might see me asking for examples online and also maybe Katarina dropping that in the communities for the same reason. And we do always credit the authors with a backlink. So it's a win-win kind of game. Are people responding to those? Like I've seen, uh, to give a little bit of context to the listeners, you guys are tweeting stuff like, we're looking for emails when a SaaS company announces the acquisition, for example. So you guys have an example that you can use for your for your articles. Are a lot of people giving you this as feedback on the in the communities that you're active in? Does that work? Yep, yeah, yeah, that works, definitely. So like you asked the question like that, and Katarina probably does that more than you guys do, right? And people are actually mentioning 
things that they that can, they can that they wrote themselves oh. or that other people got from them stuff and like that. I'm pretty sure it helps that we're also happen to be a credible company that mm. is asking for that. People know that it's our thing that we're asking for examples. So it's a mixed game, but yeah, for our for our situation it definitely works and it's fun also because writing articles based on solid material is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, yeah. And I think it's perfectly valid to be very very not against but very suspicious at least of of ai articles like i mentioned right now the i have a command line tool not much more that writes five articles on the five biggest learnings from every podcast episode that we're doing but as you can imagine the quality and i think that that Claude's quality is better than chat gpt's in, from OpenAI. but Claude still writes very very not bad articles but the, it never actually does the length that I want, for example. So I tell it I want an article that's 3,000 words long, and it writes me an article that's 500 words long. Stuff like that, even we have very large prompts at the moment for this, doesn't work. Um, so I'm, I, not, I, I'm, I'm still thinking about deleting all the articles and writing in my hand. So <laughs> I'm actually on the same opinion side than you are. Since you touched on podcast production, so I run UI Breakfast podcast and also well, it's not it's not fair to say I run because it's it's the team. It's the same podcast manager. It's Chris at the moment. So we run UI Breakfast and Better Done Than Perfect. It, it's a podcast branded by UserList about marketing and product. So for Better Done Than Perfect, we go, we have pretty amazing production flow. We write executive recaps, like sprinkled with quotes that really is like one or 2,000 words of meaning about each episode and Krista writes these recaps manually using Descript as a transcription tool but mm -hmm. just grabbing quotes and writing the rec recap themselves. Looking at what others do with AI, I think this is borderline stupid and like a waste <laughs> of human resources but I'm, I'm delighted with the things we put out and I don't think we're ready to give that up yet and switch to AI because we know these recaps are meaningful and those few people who read them will probably enjoy them very much versus what AI raised. Another question is, will Google find a way to, to, to fight that vast amounts of AI generated content? It's a matter of time, you know. So let's see. <laughs> let's see. I think Danny Postma has already like the he's a large creator in the Inhaker space as well. He he tweeted that the AI generated articles he has on his webpage don't get any hits. So he's he just deleted all of them. And I kind of can say the same for our page, but also it's not ranked very well. So it might just be that Google just ignores our page in general. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a multi-factor thing. Also, there is there's this ethical aspect, you know, of mm. We operate in the digital space and, you know, everything, every pixel of data, we had the, uh, an episode about this, like digital sustainability, ecological aspect, every pixel of, and every bit of data needs to be stored and the server power and everything. Do we really just want to breed this meaningless texts that occupy bits of space and just live somewhere? Or do you want to spend your life doing something meaningful and generating meaningful stuff in a small amount? I vote for the second. <laughs> yeah. It's really, but I have, I have seen amazing marketers who don't think like that. So it's up to you what you want to, what you want to do with your life and with your professional life. 
getting back into the actual <laughs> content of your articles, if we're talking about that, it's kind of amazing that email as a as a concept has survived for so long and also, in my opinion, has a, an upsurge right now. Like newsletters are more read now than it, ten years ago. Is at least my feeling of the of the market. Not sure if that's the case. Okay, you're you're already nodding your head. So I'm asking the question, and you can answer that part as well. In 2023, how are you doing email marketing that works and converts users? And what's your opinion on emails in the last 10, 20 years? They have been working, and they still work. <laughs> So your quest now as a creator or as a brand is to send emails that are meaningful, well-written, hopefully short, and just make sense and context for, for the user. The users, I would really highlight this, opted in to your email marketing so they know who's this coming from and why they're receiving this. They know you're going to be you know, providing value for them and you're doing your best to do that. And then comes like how exactly you orchestrate that, whether that's your newsletter or whether these are your onboarding emails. But really, if this, uh, if this clear communication comes from the respected source that people signed up for, why not do that? Like, this is definitely a trustworthy channel. Sure, we do have a lot of bad stuff in our inboxes, things we didn't opt in for or just poorly written or maybe cold outreach emails which we get a bunch for sure but nonetheless email still remains like the direct path to to your customers like i inbox and there is no alternative channel that works as well of course asterisks that depends on your business maybe whatsapp is a better channel for your customer base who knows uh, we also offer in-app notifications as another channel inside our automations there are things you can try but email definitely works and you should not leave it on the table that's but on the other hand it's not a silver bullet if your product doesn't resonate with people onboarding emails we're not going to rescue that situation <laughs> and also you shouldn't be expecting like conversion lift of 50 percent if you enable onboarding emails but not trying to do that is kind of silly because that uplift you shouldn't neglect yeah bad emails can also be have negative impact on your conversion rates if you're very insensitive if you're just blasting people with irrelevant emails and trying to sell them stuff before they even activate that can, that can hurt so it's like uh, a good analogy is benedict my co-founder says we're selling knives and you can make a wonderful dinner with it but you can also like cut your finger very easily <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. As someone who tries to think or as someone who tries to set up a newsletter right now and has thought about doing that for like six months, I'm still, and that's why I said that in my feeling, that newsletters have a back search or have been bigger than they have been in 10 years ago. Is that the feeling for you as an email professional or is that something that I'm just wrong about? Is, is newslettering just becoming bigger, bigger all the time? I made a living off my newsletter list like of my of my mailing list since since 2013 mm -hmm. so i've been building that for my personal brand and i still like love and nurture these relationships um, so that has worked for years newsletters being like a hipstery thing substack and stuff that's just a surge of new trends lovely I'm, I'm glad that we have eyeballs for this i would really be cautious about uh, trusting your newsletter with a third-party platform meaning that if you pay a little bit of money to like MailChimp or similar, 
you own the thing. If you build a free newsletter at one of the platforms I'm not going to name, that's a little bit of a different story. And same with the like free podcast hosting. You really have to be cautious about who owns the rights to this and who owns the ultimate email list. One factor I didn't mention when I was highlighting the benefits of email marketing is that you own this channel. Mm. Unlike social media, somebody can buy Twitter. <laughs> somebody can buy a LinkedIn and you're going to be left without a channel. Somebody's going to close up Instagram. You know, anything can happen. Um, but your email list, more or less, you own. Um, please do regular exports and backups. Um, <laughs> that really helps. Uh, that you more or less own. So try and keep your email list, you know, in your own hands if you can. Because the principles are the same. You're just going to have to pay an extra $20 a month. And trust me, that is worth, you know, mm -hmm. the risk of sacrificing your data to somebody you don't know. I'm interested. You all, you just mentioned that you used your email list for your personal marketing or your personal branding to to work off of. How would I that I have never started a newsletter? I have a blog on my personal on my personal on my branding website. Let's say that which I all write by hand. How do you think people should start a newsletter? I always think like nobody is interested in my thoughts or in my content, and nobody will subscribe. How do you get over that over that gap over that that problem? I never had that specific problem because it was a clear newsletter for, for the UI breakfast mm -hmm. brand as a consultancy. So there was always this angle of design education that I was doing. It was not a matter of like, how do I start? But more that like, how do I energy to publish continuously and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> useful stuff? That is the harder question. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, I can see how that can be intimidating, but you know, Just work on your blog as you would on an, on a product. Think about the target audience. Think about the value you provide, even if, if it's from your personal name. Yeah, and think about what a lead magnet you can put in your website so that people have the incentive to uh, actually put in their email address and start, um, start subscribing. In my case, the first 100 people I think uh, I got through, I went really backwards. So in 2013, I wrote my first book having a very tiny email list. And then I put this book on the deal site and then people were subscribing for sample chapters. So I got that initial surge of traffic from the deals, I know, mightydeals.com, something like that. <laughs> and I made a little bit of sales, but it's not about the money, but that's how I got my first like 100 strangers that subscribed for something I made. So a sample chapter from that book was the lead magnet, that particular case. And then it was just like years of hustling, different promotions, appearances, podcasting. Uh, yeah, just, just a bunch of work. So do you really need that? In, in in the old days, the notion was you should have an audience as a consultant so that you can, when you need more work, you can kind of turn the tap on and, and get it. Mm. The thing is, I know a bunch of amazing consultants who leave off referrals and do zero marketing like that. And they thrive. <laughs> so mm. I wouldn't say that that's the, this is the only way. And I wouldn't say that every human needs to invest half of their life into building a brand. That's not necessarily true. Especially that things get more noisy, uh, noisier and noisier every day, you know. Really think really hard if you actually want to do a newsletter <laughs> or just keep your blog. <laughs> I will I will think about it. 
one thing that you guys mentioned in your product, which I'm really interested because I haven't heard about it yet. And uh, before we started the podcast, you also said that the market is pretty small for that. You talk about integrating product data into your email marketing platform. How does that work for you guys? And how does that work different than with competitions? Like you, you mentioned that you are one of the few guys who's doing this. We are definitely not one of the few, but data integration is the way to make your mm -hmm. behavior email marketing automation work. The thing is, this has been definitely working for bigger companies for ages, and there is a whole culture of data and everything, but it's not very uh, popular among smaller companies. And the notion is, pretty much everybody knows how MailChimp works. And you think, you're, I'm going to upload my subscriber list, and, and it works. So they extrapolate that, and they think, oh, I'm going to upload my customer list to user list as a CSV, and my email marketing is going to work. But that's not exactly not how it should work, because your customer list is continuously updated. People keep signing up daily. You have new people coming. You have people uh, canceling accounts. You have success metrics uh, changing. So those properties and fields and everything continuously updated. And that's how you get information about what's happening to your customers. And we don't mean very sensitive, like third-party data. We mean information about their core information about their activity. Is their account active? How many projects uh, they have inside? Like, what's what are the metrics? What's their billing plan? Just the basics like that. And that data needs to be continuously sent uh, through the backend, from your backend to our system, either through the direct API integration, which takes like a few lines of code to happen, or through the customer data platform like Oh, the famous one is segment, router stack, things like that. The customer data platforms make it easier because you just make integration a one-time thing. The data is sent to a segment and then segment can send it to other tools, which is like plug and play integrations. And there are also other direct integrations with other tools, but the core information still has to come from your backend. So there is no replacement for, for that. And that's the data you're going to be using to build your segments to see what people are doing. And then you're going to be using that to trigger campaigns. That's the complexity of this. And that's why the setup is not like a trivial one-day thing. And that's why we're having such, you know, it's, it's not plug and play. It's definitely not one-click plug and play. We're not struggling with adoption, but we we definitely experience like, we can keep improving it forever, probably, because there are things to educate people about. There are things to help, like we just launched uh, done-for-you services this year, for example, for people who want done-for-you. There is endless potential for improvement on that side. And I can imagine you then have a lot of data of your customers and maybe a little data of their customers and that comes back to the to the, the, the earlier description that you made that you had to launch an incorporation early and i have this question here like how do you deal with having so much data from third parties and your customers is the gdpr thing hanging over your head all the time or <laughs> how do you deal with that kind of data privacy thing my co-founder benedict is a data privacy nerd 
So we're <laughs> doing our best to stay compliant with the recent regulations. We have a we are GDPR compliant. We have the compliance section in the docs. So we're doing our best to help our customers stay compliant as well. That's as much as I can say. And mm-hmm. you should probably interview Benedict for more. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have to set that up. Yeah. We're very conscious about not collecting more than what we need. And we also encourage our our own customers when they so the idea is that our customers will send us this brief behavior information about their customers but most times they don't need much sometimes you would have like a huge data tracking plan but you only need a few properties to really know like what's going on so we encourage to focus on those and if i understood correctly the product data integration stuff then makes it easy to segment your customers users into segments <laughs> mm-hmm. and how far can i take this like what kind of behavior can i see in the data that i can segment into different emails that i can that i can then send to the user so the approach we preach is to have lifecycle segmentation to build a customer journey map of stages the customer goes through and this is largely dependent on the pricing model the SaaS company uses so if we have Free tr- so there are three models we use: the free trial model, the um, freemium model, and uh, the model that doesn't have one of those, but that includes like one, somebody just signs up and starts using the tool, but then you charge based on credits or commission or anything. That's what we call that part. We call the funnel model. But they're all it's it's not rocket science, but requires a bit of planning and you know understanding what you're doing. So you model the customer journey map different segments for these lifecycle stages like advanced cost trials paying customers advanced paying customers and when people join either one of those segments you will start certain behavior campaigns that's the idea so if you have your segments nailed down then you have a good idea of what you'll be sending most likely for the for example the the trialing users we're sending them the user onboarding sequence when they become paying customers where they will send them the customer success sequence or anything you want to tell them after they become paying customers to advanced customers we send the customer loyalty sequence so let's say once a month you'll be getting in touch with them with certain things like i don't know asking for a review or sending them a shirt or inviting them for a call or other like little engagements you can do with your um, cool folks so uh, there's so much you can do but it's also it's not extreme rocket science but also when you're like opening up the tool and you have the blank page you're not going to come up from this from scratch definitely so that's why we have all these materials and recommendations and one more question before we go to the finishing questions maybe what's like the best sentence i can send the customer that churns like I, i just got a cancellation from this customer how do i get them back what's like one thing i can do it's a great question don't <laughs> uh, use uh, one of those cancellation flows uh, that would get them interact before they actually hit cancel so one of our fellow companies that we're fellows with is turnkey they provide this cancellation experience you try to get them to stay by providing discounts asking them things not in a sleazy way not in a like bad mechanics way but just genuinely trying to figure out their situation so that's probably be more that'd be more effective and then once you once they turn then obviously you can send them something and ask them why 
But honestly, if you can get your customer success rep do that with a more personal touch, that'd be more fun. And mm-hmm. also, as Michelle Hansen said, she wrote a book, Deploy Empathy, which is like my second recommended book after the mom test. She says that cancellation interviews are not for the weak of heart. Like this is the hardest part. There is no mo- no motivation anymore. And like, don't fret over those as much. So my recommendation would be try try using the cancellation flows, then try investigating and crafting a more personal message if you want to learn indeed. Because sure, you can send that follow-up automated message. Mechanically, that's not a problem. The question is what you're going to write that's going to trigger them to respond, really, mm-hmm. if they're already done with you. And you might be a great cooperator, but I'm having trouble imagining that. Even though like, you, you shouldn't neglect that, but you know, try a few other things as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> Does it help? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, I, I, I thought I'd I, I throw you a last curveball before we go to the finishing questions. And I think you got some value out of that, yeah. Um, and then for the finishing questions that are always the same for every founder that we have here, the first one is always... What are you excited about right now? And that can be work-related and technology-related, but it doesn't have to be. We're working on a new visual automations builder at UserList, which is currently oh, cool. in like alpha working version. It's an industry standard. We hope it's going to encourage more customers to switch to us. But also, in addition to like just email messages, we're going to have other automation nodes included, like message your customer success rep within your automation or do other things. So hopefully that will help us position user list, not just as an email platform, but more like as an automation suite for SaaS, because the, the needs of SaaS very often go beyond just email. So that will get us closer to that vision of doing more with that customer data that mm-hmm. <laughs> we originally wanted. That would mm-hmm. be the thing we're excited about. I would be excited as Benedict as well, uh, because mm-hmm. I think that's a nice thing to actually develop um, and get it to They're be snappy fun. and stuff. They're having yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last question for you, Jane, is for our Indie Hacker listeners who are just starting out, what's like the one lesson or advice you would give someone who's at the start of this, hasn't done much or has started a project, no marketing, hasn't sold stuff, doesn't have a user yet. What's like the one lesson for an indie hacker just starting out? It's going to be slow, painful. So <laughs> don't start unless you're really willing to contribute years of life and treat it serious. There is no easy money out there anymore. It's going to be very heavy marketing, very heavy effort, and you're going to spend tons of time and sweat and tears. You must love your company, love your product, love your audience, and willing to contribute your next few years of life. Previously, there was easy money. You could start something and that could hit uh, the market very easily and you could get to revenue fast. I think these opportunities are gone now. Of course, we do see new AI startups popping up and we feel a little bit like selling you know, shovels to gold diggers. <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> but really easy money. People are not as people are not as easy anymore and the business is mm-hmm. not as easy anymore. The economy is strapped, like it's not easy. Don't go yeah, for exactly. it for the easy money. 
<laughs> and you can't really go the VC route either because those guys also don't have the money anymore that they had in 2020. So it's going to be hard either way, I think. <laughs> yeah. If you're a good developer, a good engineer, you're going to make much more money in a peaceful way, just consulting for a bigger company in a peaceful situation, like a peaceful environment. Don't stress. Yeah. <laughs> I think we had a few people on on here that said that being safe and having money at coming in in a safe funnel somewhere that might be a full-time job or contracting like I do or something else but yeah going the indie hacker career full-time and with no backup is very dangerous right now I think also in our case we have always had an engineer and the marketer marketer me engineer Benedict and even with these two pair of hands, it's been hard. I cannot imagine one person having to do both. It's a load of marketing and it's a mm. load of engineering and it's a load of work all in all. Yeah, I think so too. Well, Jane, our time is up. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I think we got a lot of, a lot of uh, information about emails out of here. <laughs> it's and, been fun um, to unpack. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you as well. And yeah, I hope you have a great day and thank you for being here. Likewise, thank you very much. Good luck, <laughs> everybody. And that's our episode. Thank you for sticking with us to the end. You can find Jane uh, on Twitter with the username UI Breakfast. That's UI and the word breakfast. You can find links to user list right there in her bio as well. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. We're always happy to hear feedback. If you're building an indie hacker business yourself and want to be part of the show, we're also really happy to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter with the username Icebearlabs, that's I-C-E-B-E-A-R-L-A-B-S, or send me a mail to Tobias at icebearlabs.com. And you can now also find this podcast on Twitter with the handle CodeConquerPod. We also have a website you can check out. We're posting articles about the biggest learnings of each episode there as well. Go to codeandconquer.fm to find out more. If you're one of the people who listens to this podcast on the Apple Podcast platform, please consider rating our show. It lets other people discover this podcast and helps us grow this even bigger. Thank you so much. Till next time.